This morning I'll be reading for you out of Matthew chapter 2, preaching for you from verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father. We thank you now that as we come to this house and are encountering your son by your word, by the proclamation of your gospel and your truth, your power and your salvation, may we learn how to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. May we learn how to further in faithful worship May we give of all that you give to us, and may we trust you, trust your word, and to live accordingly. Help us in this, Father, for your glory and for your name, because you are worthy to be worshipped. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you may have heard in the news this week that... Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin collapsed on Monday after his heart stopped after a routine play where he took down the guy with the ball. He collapsed and was, I guess, temporarily dead. And they had to bring him back, um, get his heart beating again, and thankfully he is, um, I think, doing much better and doing well. But during that moment, uh, an interesting phenomena happened in our national sports and on our television and culture of watching sports. People fell on their knees in prayer. 
It was an amazing scene. Commentators are still very baffled by it that people came out onto the field and very immediately players began to fall on their knees to pray for Damar as they thought that he was dead and going to stay dead. And then even from there, people in the crowd, fans began to pray. And there was an ESPN commentator, Dan Orleski, who a lot of people were amazed because he's talking about how all of this is happening and unfolding before our eyes. And he said, you know, people talk about prayer, but right now, quote, I am going to pray out loud, close my eyes, and bow my head and pray for him. And he prayed this prayer for Damar's healing on live television. Unscripted, unprepared. Likely if it would have been scripted, it probably wouldn't have occurred. But he prayed and he used these words that I'm going to bow my head. And then even since then, after that, other games, team members have come out onto the field and have kneeled in prayer, praying for Damar. People are amazed. Some people say they haven't seen something like that in the public eye since maybe 9-11 where people came together in prayer. Now, of course, the event with Damar Hamlin is nothing like September 11th, but we are kind of jarred and amazed and evangelicals are refreshed and somewhat hopeful to see such a display of people bowing down and going before the Lord, petitioning the Lord. What's going on here? Let's take a moment to think about this activity. Let's think about what Dan said when he said, I would bow my head. And then the fact that as people went to pray, people didn't just step aside and pray. People fell down on their knees and prayed to the Lord. What is this posture indicating? You all can answer it in this case. <laughs> Not rhetorical. What's, what's going on? What does that mean? Why would someone, why do we bow our head? Why, in some cases, do we fall upon our knees? Why, in some cases, do we see Christians being prostrate? Or that we would hold our hands together, close our eyes, and bow our head? What does that mean? Humility. They're they're worried about something important to them that's out of their hands. So they are kind of submitting to something greater. Dependence. Dependence. I think they're suddenly also realizing how minuscule they are compared to a mighty God they are worshiping or reaching out to. It's definitely the right posture to be in. Now, we can't see people's hearts to know whether they, how dependent they really are or how much respect that they give or if they're reaching out to something greater or what kind of humility they truly have. But the posture is obvious that it's not a prideful stance. It's not a, it's not a place of control. Um, they were hoping on people who, obviously, they had all the medical professionals they can, and they have the, usually those games are full of people with that ability, but they knew when the heart stops, there's no guarantee that that heart is going to come back and that even though the Lord may employ people to help bring that heart back to a beat, that ultimately only what God's will 
will be done. And people were petitioning. And so it was an encouraging thing. And it was a hopeful thing. And it did cause people to be reminded of what September 11th was like. And a lot of people maybe even had and experienced a type of revival then. But do we see that our nation is in a whole lot better place than we were 20 years ago? Not really. So in desperation, it makes sense. They say that, you know, even people have said, where were the atheists that day? Where's the criticism? (laughs) You know, there were no atheists in foxholes, right? Whenever there's those kind of circumstances, people became very humble. And even if you did have a criticism about what was going on, you knew this was not the right time (laughs) to criticize people. And it's ironic, considering Tom Brady and others who get criticized for when things aren't in desperation, showing that kind of humility. So it was refreshing that at least the critics were silent. But I think we need to be thinking about that posture and even thinking about what is going to happen next. Will this create some kind of new movement amongst us that people are going to be more comfortable with public prayer? Will we anticipate that this event will be what will revive our nation. I think in realistic terms, we cannot imagine that it will. It's just going to be probably a temporal, refreshing moment. It will have, hopefully, an impact on a variety of people's lives. And extraordinarily, God will likely, has already been using this event to bring people closer to him. I don't want to sound like a harsh critic myself that this is a null and void moment, but we've seen these kind of things happen before. What is it that they did that should be contained and maintained continually? That humility, that reaching out and that resting, and will it be continued? And is there a place for that? What would people that maybe he did not even anticipate that maybe they would fall to their knees, found themselves on the ground praying for Damar, what are they going to do when they stand back up? Are they going to continue to follow that God? You know, often whenever I experience something, this is going to go in a very extreme direction toward the mundane, I know that you can ask my family, whenever they talk about shoes, I tell them, buy waterproof shoes. (laughs) Whatever kind of shoes you get, whether they're dress shoes or whether they're utility or whether they are tennis shoes or sneakers, whatever, get waterproof shoes because I can't stand to have wet feet. And whenever I've had a situation, wherever I've had wet feet, it's miserable. And so when I found shoes that are waterproof and I've been able to walk through wet grass or walk through puddles and they're dry, I'm like, yes. And so I learned something. I learned something about something that kept me from suffering. And from then on, I created as a part of my regular life, always buying to the best of my ability trying to buy waterproof shoes. So here in this particular situation, will people, when they've gone to the Lord, and maybe now even some people are saying, look, he's been healed. You know, he's been brought back. And a lot of people are thanking God that he heard the prayers of the people and that he, he uh, spared Damar's life. Are they going to continue to show him that same honor, that same loyalty, that same posture of worship. This particular passage today, I think, is very much centered 
upon worship. Of course, this is another fulfillment passage. This is the last, for many churches, the last Sunday of the Advent and Christmas type passages. And it will be for us, though I guess you could say that Christmas and Advent, the anticipation of Christ's return, continues in all of our um, preaching. But in particular to the calendar and what is common amongst the church, this is a fulfillment passage of the coming of the Messiah. It is a, even a good news passage for the Gentiles, considering where the wise men came from. But at the center of this narrative is the activity of worship. And so we should ask ourselves, what is worship? And like I mentioned earlier, that it's a blessing that as we come here today in this basement of someone's house, that we ask ourselves, where do we, do, can we worship here? Can we worship there? Can we worship anywhere? One of the things that I know that Maharus and Mary sought to do in preparations for us being here worshiping today is that it would not become too casual. You know, there's a couch behind this, and there's no one sitting on it. It would be really sad, because I know if we were all sitting on couches, more than likely a significant percentage of you would probably be asleep. <laughs> Especially on a nice rainy and cloudy day where we would all rather probably be sitting on the couch. I, for one, would rather be asleep in some respects, at least how my body feels. We think about what is the right posture, what is the right way to worship, where can we worship? How should we worship? And here in this particular passage, we see that even the very first worship service mentioned in the New Testament is actually in someone's home. In someone's home named Mary at that. <laughs> but they still showed this posture of worship. So much that this word for worship has a lot to do with posture. The very particular word, Greek word here in this passage that has been translated into the English word worship is proskuneo. You might know what proskuneo sounds like in another English word that we use, considering posture. Prostrate. This is the word most used in the New Testament for worship. It's used 32, if not 33 times in the New Testament. Is, it is the equivalent of what the worship is. So when you see the word worship, most of the time, going through the Gospels and the Epistles, it is actually meaning prostrate. Now granted, it is not saying that the only posture that we can be in to worship is prostrate. But it is saying at least, as we consider that we are to worship the Lord in spirit and truth, that our minds and our hearts should be prostrate before the Lord. And occasionally, as these did, physically be in that kind of posture. Now, Dan, this ESPN uh, commentator guy, did not fall to the floor, but he bowed his head. And that was an indication that he was being prostrate before the Lord. It is like the smallest amount of prostrate that we could do, but it, does, it means something. It shows us something. What this narrative tells us about worship tells us about the significance and the greatness of the one that has come, the Messiah. And it should highlight for us how we should approach his worship, how we should approach 
our life in him and coming to him. Now, all of our worship is not embodied in this moment this morning on the Lord's Day, but it is not removed from it. This is definitive. This is, in a sense, a posture of God's people to come on the first day of the week to worship him. It is like bowing our head or falling before him as a people, as the body of Christ, when we come together to define how all of our days and all of our life is humbly before the Lord. We have a clear comparison contrast event here in this conflict between the person of Herod and the wise men. Let's think about this Herod. Just to quickly clarify, this is Herod the Great. There are a lot of different Herods. He was considered to be the great one from Josephus, likely because he was the oldest son of Antipater. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, so don't be harsh to me. Herod the Great really was great in the sense of how we would consider leaders. He was a great soldier. He was a great orator. And he was a great architect and builder. He was known for all of these things. He also was a great politician. He was known to be great because he was able to pacify the Jews. To be able to put this kind of power around them. That it wasn't just that he was able to cause them to submit. But he was able to bring them to a place where they weren't in a strong objection to his leadership. And he was able to do this while raising taxes and bringing a certain kind of peace and prosperity prosperity to the land. He built mighty fortresses, showing that he was not only strong militarily because he was a great soldier, but he was also very paranoid. <laughs> and the thing that he was known for the most when it came to his architectural and building abilities is what? Quiz time. The renovation of the temple. He had ten wives. He was guilty of killing at least two, if not three, of his sons and one of his wives. And what he did that he was honored by by the Romans is that he was able to bring about this Hellenistic cultural religion, this state religion of Rome, and intermix it with Judaism. He didn't completely overtake it, but he was able to work along with the Jews, even so much that in this particular passage, it says that when the news of this ruler was being born, this ruler Jesus, that he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. He had Jerusalem with him. He had pacified them and brought them in. And he, as a response to that relationship, restored the temple. At first, they didn't think he was going to be able to do this grandiose restoration that he had planned. But he was able to masterfully do it in such a way that it really was a spectacular site. And a spectacular building, if you can recall, even the disciples were so impressed that they were talking to Jesus and saying, look at this place. But at the same time, not only was he paranoid and so narcissistic that he had made a command that when he died, 
that he would have to have some Jewish elders killed too so that the Jews would mourn with him. (laughs) He would even set the stage for that kind of grandiose self-centeredness. It's a good thing we don't have politicians like that today. (laughs) Does this sound familiar to you? A particular politician that maybe had brought some levels of peace and prosperity that was able to pacify the religious right, but that was very self-centered, a womanizer even at that, and someone that would possibly even do something like having other people killed so that people would be mourning for him. Is there anyone like that you could think of that would be that self-centered in this day and age? Nothing comes to mind. Nothing comes to mind. He was troubled at the news of Jesus coming, and it was an interesting response that when he saw what was being said, he was troubled. He was wise enough to know that something significant was happening. This was a powerful man. This was a tremendously powerful man. He was a paranoid person, but he was powerful. And to think that this particular passage would actually strike a nerve with him in verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. It's actually tweaked a little bit different than the actual original. It actually says that you are too little. But it, he, Matthew changes it, and he has the right to do so under the inspiration of God. It says, by no means... You are least among the rulers of Judea. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Two questions I would have for you to take with you. This is more rhetorical. You don't speak outside. Are you wise as, are you as wise as Herod to know what you're dealing with here? Are you as wise as Herod to know that this particular ruler, when he enters into the scenario, that things are going to change? And that no matter how powerful and how much together you think you have and what kind of fortresses you have in your life and what kind of friends and connections that you have or whatever you think you may have in riches and wealth, whatever it is that you are relying on, Are you wise enough to know that if Jesus continues in his path, the things that he has promised and declared, that your kingdom is going to have to submit? So are you as wise as Herod? And then the other question is, are you as foolish as Herod? Now, it seems that he's giving the lip service, that he's going to worship That he wants to know where this king and ruler is too. That he wants to go prostrate and show that honor and show that respect toward this ruler. But we all know. We see the bigger picture. We know a lot more about Herod. And I would say that these wise men were fairly wise to it also. But here he is, the ruler of this area. And so they actually come to him first. Assuming that he probably has read up, and he was somewhat read up, and he had enough advisors and people to give him enough insight to highlight that, yes, that when the Messiah comes, it's going to be this way. And so he knew enough to know that there was truth here, 
But we all know, and we read right through it, that he has no interest in truly worshiping, according to God's way of worshiping, this ruler and this Messiah. Not to go to that part of the passage, but we'll see, we can see later on, if you read later on, or you should be very familiar with it in chapter 2, that one of the evidences of where his heart really was and his paranoia and his what he's willing to do concerning this ruler, he kills thousands, is what they think, of children in response to that. just want to make a side note in light of what I'm alluding to about our own leaders today, that the leaders that many of the evangelicals celebrate, and even the leader that I will admit to you that I voted for also, and I'm very glad that he did appoint a judge that had a lot to do with the turning over of Roe v. Wade, is also the leader who said, you know what? The reason why you Republicans have lost this midterm election is because some of you want to protect too many children. Because you took too strong of a stance in protecting children. When it is very clear that it was his own arrogance that everyone who was very supportive of him, did not do so well. He wants to blame the children. We are not very far from the kind of situations that they were in at this particular time. But let's go to something with good news. The wise men came, and they came, and their whole goal was to worship him. How did they know what they were worshiping? The word of God. Somehow or another, they had been given insight and given direction. We don't have any background, specifically according to God's word, to exactly how they came about this information about this ruler. But we know that they knew and that they had a precision. And we actually have the word also. And we can see that what is very likely that they were reading, that when they saw the star, it wasn't just that they were walking around and they saw a star and it was a bright star and they rejoiced. The star meant something because it opened up and connected a sign to something that they had had already read. Their hope was already built upon God's word. So when we read that when they saw the star, they already knew about the star, the true star of this particular story, which is Jesus Christ. If you would, turn to your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 60, starting with verse 1. The reason why they're here is to worship. And the reason why they know what to worship is because they had the word of God somehow or another revealed to them. And it should be a question for you also, just as why were they there? Why are you here? And we should be asking ourselves continually as we go through this particular passage, are we as wise as Herod or are we as foolish as Herod? Do we know what worship is? Are we worshiping the Lord? And why do we worship the Lord? Verse 1, chapter 60 in Isaiah. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light. And kings, the brightness of your rising. 
Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. This was to fulfill a portion of that or the fullness of that in a sense, because there are many ways that this is being fulfilled, but here it is the the complete unveiling of what this shadow is, of who has come, this true light, and how we will respond when the light shines in the darkness. Turn to Psalm chapter Psalm 72, verse 8. The psalm says, May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, and all nations serve him. And then lastly, turn with me, if you would, to Numbers 24. These are likely passages that they may have been familiar with, likely familiar with, or at least these are known now as to be the prophecies of what this is actually talking about. In Numbers chapter 24, starting with verse 12, it says, And Balaam said to Balak, Do I not tell your messengers whom you have sent to me? If Balak should give me this house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. Here was this conflict between Balaam and Balak and wanting to get the kind of prophecy that would most benefit him and and who was restricted to only giving what it was the truth from God's word. Then skipping to verse 15, it says, And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the word of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. And break down the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. This is what perked not only the interests of the wise men, but also Herod. He got it. He had been with them for a long time. He understood how to read it. His heart was not there, but he had the intelligence to understand that there's going to be a power play here. And he had at least enough of an indication that he believed that God would likely fulfill this prophecy 
And it would be likely against him. Not that he could have something to do about it, though. Here, if this king is a child, I'm not a child. I'm a military giant. I can crush this child and thwart it all. Do we have any kind of level of confidence that we think that we're going to change anything in God's direction? And we might say, of course not. We're smart enough. We're wiser than Herod. But how do we live our lives? How do we approach our worship? How do we anticipate our next day? Are we those who gravitate toward hopelessness and despair? Maybe we're in hopelessness and despair because we're afraid that God's going to crush our earthly kingdom instead of hoping in his eternal kingdom. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew couldn't get enough words in that to explain what that means. That is so much as if they were just overwhelmed with joy. It was very similar there in Isaiah when it says, Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. This should be uplifting to us that if we're in his word, whenever we encounter his word, whenever we encounter the presence of Jesus, whenever we are worshiping Jesus, whenever the realities of Jesus comes to our darkness and shines light, our response, if we understand the magnitude of our sin, the magnitude of our darkness, and the magnitude of his power, the certainty of his power and his promises, when we are submitting to him and worshiping him and are undone and bowed down and unable to stand against his kingdom, we should be rejoicing that he allows us to be a part of his kingdom. Here we see that when they encountered and they saw this Jesus, they saw the one the word of God was about. The very first thing they did when they walked into that room was they worshiped. They bowed down. The second thing that they did is that they gave their offerings. They gave of their riches. Of course, this was in fulfillment of what was to be said about this Messiah, but that is the appropriate response in worshiping the Lord is to give an offering to the Lord. Where is the first time we see an offering given to the Lord? Uh, in the garden, just after the garden. What? Give me more information. What's going on? Who gives an offering? Abel and Cain, they both give an offering. Abel gives an offering from what? From his animals, the first fruits of his animals. You're shaking your head, no, he didn't give the first fruits of his animals? This is Abel, did I say Abel? Abel, so he gives that of his animals. And so there's an animal sacrifice or an offering given from what we can assume. Cain gave from his, the work of his, his fruits, from his vegetation. And we see that here even we see what is required from God in being able 
to center that worship is going to have to point to something that is going to require bloodshed. But that's not the first time that there is an animal sacrifice that points to the necessity of Jesus Christ. Where's the first? It's, yeah, it's... That's correct. The skins. We have the obvious. It's a, in, you know, we don't see it laid out directly, but the, who provides that? The Lord provides the sacrifice. The next time we see worship being instituted is with Noah, who provides a sacrifice of animals. And then when we see Abraham do it, we see him there with Isaac when he's been told that his son is going to be required. But who provides the sacrifice once again? The Lord provides. So we see that worship, and when we look at what offerings and worship is, that it has always been centered in Jesus Christ. And here, that even though we have these riches, these riches are actually showing that it is the Lord, it is the Messiah that is royal. He is the royal ruler, that all we can give is everything back to him because he has already been the offering. He has already the sacrifice. He is the Savior, and so he just takes everything of us, even our posture. And then the third thing that they did, other than just worship and provide offering, is that they trusted, they continued to trust and obey his direction. Just as they trusted and obeyed to go and to worship the Lord, they continued to trust and obey when, he was, when they were warned to go a different direction, and therefore they received the blessing and the benefit of being preserved from the wrath of Herod. So again, I want to just bring this back down to us. So when we see this great revelation of light in this time of darkness, and it's a very familiar story that you see, but I want to encourage you not to be like Herod in his foolishness, but also not to be like our culture, to actually go a different way, to follow the word of the Lord, not to be given in to the destruction that Herod is inevitably going to face himself. If you read further in the chapter, you will see some of the best small phrase, Herod died, that this wicked ruler died. All of these attempts to thwart the Messiah will die. It will be destroyed. He will not be successful. So for us, we too want to continue on and take from this lesson not only a celebration of this great revelation of who the Messiah is and the witnesses of that Messiah and the fulfillment of those prophecies, but to come with that or leave with that with an obedient posture toward our own worship. And one of the things is just to look about what the word worship means. If it's in the Bible 32 times in the New Testament, to be bowed down and prostrate, it should show us that our worship should be foremost, foremost full of humility, full of obedience, full of reliance, And occasionally, when possible, there should at least be a bowing of a head showing some kind of physical manifestation of what our heart is trying to communicate. We're not going to be able to do it perfectly. We attempt to do that here, 
by doing this orderly and respectfully. We didn't put bean bags up in a, in a uh, disco ball. <laughs> We're trying to come to the Lord showing our reverence. To show a different, a separation of our focus towards something that's greater than all the things in our life. That's the reason why I dress the way I dress. I'm not trying to emulate the Catholics, I promise you that. In fact, just as a quick history note, the collar idea actually came from the Presbyterians and the Roman Catholics copied them. It's to show that I'm not here on my own. That my worship and my leading of worship is restrained to something greater than me. That I'm not here for a fashion show. We even... The idea of me rolling up my sleeves was learning from other ministers that actually rolled up their sleeves as an indication that I'm here to serve you. That I am below a greater king. All of what I am wearing is a posture. It's not a requirement. We were talking amongst the consistory of whether or not we want to continue the collar and everything when we get to Mendota, if that's going to confuse people. There's no set in stone requirement, but it is a posture of showing that there's something greater, definitely greater than me, that's here being presented to you today. So proskuneo, 32 times, four times in the New Testament, sabo, which means reverence, honor, or fear, two times the word sebasima, which is a pious act. Three times latrium, which is religious service, a service to the Lord, like we see in Romans 12.1. And then thruskakia, a ritual act. All of these particular words for worship in the New Testament, and if you go back to the Old Testament, it's heavily with the bow down and prostrate. It's still dominant throughout both the Old and the New Testament shows this great humility, reverence, respect, submission, and reliance upon the Lord. So our worship should look like that. Our worship shouldn't be, it's all about me. It isn't all about how I feel. It isn't really even purposely for me on the, on the front end of it. We get the benefit of the fruit that comes from faithful worship, But everything we see in the scriptures is about our service to others. We see where Cain went wrong. We don't know what was communicated to Cain. We know that Abel did the firstborn of his flock and their their fat portions. We know that Cain gave an offering, but there was a problem somewhere with his heart. He was wrong from the start because he was wanting something back from God outside of what God had instituted. It is clear God wasn't being unjust with Cain. I don't think he was terribly surprised. Like, oh, I thought I was going to be able to do this. And then, oh, you didn't like it? Oh, man. No, I'm sure that God was not unjust with how he set that up. And then we see Aaron, how he quickly changes the worship to go toward he says, well, this is, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Completely taking the, the, the credit to some other god. In Leviticus, we all know the story of Nadab and Abihu, who took 
a strange fire, took an approach to God's worship wrongly. But I like what John Calvin says. It says it's likely that in Leviticus 10, that Nadab and Abihu didn't intend to be irreverent, but they were actually irreverent by not worshiping God according to his prescriptions. I mean, it would be obvious, would it not be, that you know, it's one thing to show respect and to bow down and to go down, but it, what good is it to bow down if God tells you to do something else and you do the opposite thing? Or you don't follow his instruction? If I say, hey, Knox, you know, you're home this week. Um, would you mind mowing the yard? And he's home all week and it didn't, it didn't rain at all and and everything's good, and I, I see him at the end of the week, and the yard's, you know, three feet high. I'm like, what's up, Knox? I'll be running mow the yard. And he's like, oh, I'll wash the windows. Oh, good. <laughs> that's, that's fine. I mean, I'd be glad if you wash the windows. Don't ever think differently about it. But what happened to the grass? Oh, I decided that I'd rather wash the windows. Well, of course, there's going to be a problem with that. Well, do we approach our worship in the same way that we can just define for ourselves? And the reason why we often do is because we have a heart issue. We see in Matthew 15, Jesus even quoting from the Old Testament, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, The peoples honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrine of the commandments of men. They're using their own commandments. Ananias and Sapphira, you know, you would think, wow, they, 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 they did good. They contributed to the saints. They contributed to the church. But then we see in Acts chapter 5, it says, while it remained, when Peter says, while your property remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not your disposal? Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You haven't just slid to man, but to God. By saying that this is everything we have when it's not. Whenever we fall into wrong worship, it's initiated because our hearts are in the wrong place. We are told in the word of God in Romans 12. Here it says, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our spiritual worship is our service. This particular Greek word is our religious service that we are to, instead of, we don't need to worry about putting forth an animal sacrifice anymore. We have Jesus, so when we are worshiping the Lord, we're putting our all before the Lord. We are putting everything about us in submission to the Lord. Well, do we get to choose how we go about doing that? Well, Paul furthers on. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Just as the wise men were in the word of God to know who to worship, and they understood the magnitude of what kind of God that they were worshiping so they knew how to worship. We on this side of the Messiah's revelation, death and resurrection, and ascension and reign, we should be those who are seeking out what does the Lord will for his own worship. 
There's a book called Real Worshippers by Bob Coughlin. He's a Reformed pastor from Louisville, Kentucky. You may have seen his Coughlin. You may see his name written on a lot of Sovereign Grace music. He's formerly, I've seen him in a lot of conferences. He's kind of the music director. And, and I was really refreshed to hear what he had to say that you know, about 1997, he had an interaction with his pastor by some books that was given to him to read that he realized that he put way too much focus on the emotional experience of worship. Being in one who is a musician and trying to lead people into worship, that was a very big thing to him. But he realized that that wasn't the primary point of worship. He pointed out five things in his book. He says, number one, worship isn't centered on me. Two, worship isn't defined by musical experience. Three, worship doesn't start and stop. Four, worship is still about God's presence. And five, worship will never end. R.C. Sproul says that, yes, evangelism is very important. It's our call and great commission and making disciples is very important. But our worship is always going to be primary over all things because it's the thing that will go on forever. When we are done evangelizing, we will be worshiping. So as a church, as a people, as families, as individuals, in your own individual worship, in your own family time of worship, and as the body of Jesus Christ, worship should be primary. It is the thing that actually has helped me in the last three months as I was praying and talking with the consistory about the future of our congregation, about whether we should change things or switch things or what should we do. We're a small group. Should we just merge in with other people? And then I realized more and more that faithful worship is so central. And I'm not saying that there's no churches around us that are not faithful in worship. But do we have faithful and fruitful worship? And we feel the Lord had highlighted for us that we do. Not that we're perfect and we have a lot of room to go. We'll keep trying to be faithful. So Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? And all these things be done for building up. When we come to worship, we know that God is primary. I've made that very clear in the message today. But when we come to worship, we are coming to build up the body of Christ. And if you think about the summary of the whole law, is to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. When we come to worship, we are striving to obey the whole of the law by giving him the posture and the worship that is deserved for him, but recognizing that in the power of Jesus Christ, he has made his people his body. So to be consistent with that faithful worship is that we come to build each other up. Most churches today, most people's approach to churches today, not so much, I don't even want to blame the churches, though that would probably be the blame, but a lot of people go seeking a place where they can worship so that they can receive something to, make, to highlight something that they already want to highlight about themselves. Probably a lot like Herod. To use the worship of God for their own purposes. 
But when we are called to worship, that we're to take all of these things, and that includes each one of you, when you come, when you wake up on Sunday morning and you're struggling on whether or not you want to come to worship, you say, well, you know, they don't need me today. I don't want to go today. You are choosing to not help build each other up. That's why we sing together. That's why we don't have our speakers blaring so much to a point where we can't hear your voices. We want to hear your voice. We want to be encouraged by the body of Christ about the words of Christ and the praise of Christ. That's why we sing together. That's why we don't just stay home and just read a book or listen to it. I said a tape. <laughs> we don't have tapes anymore. You listen to a, a, a podcast or listen to music on your iPod. No, we come together for the building up of each other. In that same passage, we are also, it also highlights that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So therefore, there should be an understanding of this truth. That's why we are doing it in a way that in verse 40, it says that all things should be done in order. We have a way of doing things that respects the things that God has instructed. Particularly about men and women. Even. In that passage, it's talking about the relationships of men and women. In Ephesians, we see that all of these, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, are for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The whole structure of the church is to build each other up. And it's not just the officers building you all up. It's saying that to train and equip you to build each other up. So when you come... You're participating. I know I've said this before, and probably in this passage and other times in January. People, you are needed. Every single one of you. Every one of you. The kids in the back. I heard your voices this morning. I need to hear those voices. Did y'all hear those voices this morning? That does something. That builds me up for the ministry of Christ. On this rainy day and awkwardness of coming to a new place, hearing the voices of those children builds me up for the worship and the glory of God. If they weren't here, we'll miss out on that. Each one of you have a place and a calling in that. Not to end on a negative note, but Paul says in Corinthians chapter 11, that when we come to this table, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone, and a lot of people get that, examine himself, because we're very introspective people, and so we're like, well, you know, I don't know if I should take you to the table today because I've had, you know, done this wrong and I've had this bad thought or I got into a fight with somebody. But here, a lot of people don't pay attention to this next one. It says, for if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Here Paul is teaching us that when we come to this table, we come together. This is why you can't just pop up a little juice thingy and cracker at home. We're coming here as a body because we want to see each other. We want to do this together because we're going to discern the body. 
We anticipate that you're having conversations with one another, that you're praying for each other, that you're reading the prayer requests, and that you're discerning the state of the body of Jesus Christ. Are you thinking about each other? Are you praying for each other? Are you inquiring with one another? Are you encouraging one another? Are you building each other up? Because it says that if you come to this table and you're thinking, well, I just came here to maybe get encouraged myself and you know, maybe not feel so bad and maybe I've been feeling guilty. I'm glad I came so I don't have to feel so guilty for my sin. And, and yeah, I want to, just me and Jesus, just me and Jesus, you know. Paul's saying if you're not coming discerning the whole body of Christ, you could die. It's not just, it's not an option. It's saying that the whole purpose of all of this, when you come together, is to come as a body. It says, this is why so many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Because it's that important to this great and mighty king that he has worshipped in truth, in spirit, truth, and love. He came in love for us. He wants that love to be manifested in us. He doesn't want us to be Unitarian in our approach to worship where it's just one me and Jesus. The whole nature of the Godhead is relational. This is what we have now. We have more than what the wise men have. We have reason to be wiser in our worship. Hebrews 1 And I'll close here. This is where we'll start next week. It says, Long ago and at many times, in many ways, prophecies, unknown conversations that God may have had with Abel and Cain. We don't know how Noah knew what was unclean and clean. But he did when he brought the animals to the ark and he had designated animals for sacrifice. We don't know all the ways that God long ago spoke, and we do know some of the ways that he spoke. And he spoke in many different ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I was going to end that earlier, but that's all one sentence. (laughs) And you've got to get the magnitude of what he's saying here. That we have more now than what the wise men had. We have the words of Christ. We have his instruction for the church. We have instruction for how we are to worship. We should be much wiser than Herod. We should be even wiser than the wise men. In our reverence, in our respect, in our submission, in our love, in our joy for the worship of Jesus Christ. Let us pray.